Welcome back to the Multipod. My name's Ted, and I've got a quick introduction for a very special episode that we've put together. We're going to take you up to northern Sweden, Lapland, and the city of Skellefteå, where Flo, one of our co-hosts, visited back in the end of December 2020 with his family. I think on some kind of business opportunity, but basically he had a bit of a loophole that allowed themselves to travel, of course, while we are otherwise stuck in lockdown. And it was an incredible, enlightening experience for all of them to see not just what uh, the differences are in terms of the approach to the pandemic, but especially how people who live in the far north, where you have very little light at that time of year over the winter, adapt to it, embrace it, and have a very enlightening approach to life and community. So Flo is here to share his story, and at the end of his report, uh, then Vanessa and myself join him for a bit of a chat, conversation about uh, the things that he has to share. So it's a bit of a longer episode, but we've put a lot of work into it. We found some really nice music, some sound effects, and uh, we really hope you enjoy it. This is Flo's presentation on visiting Sarefta in Lapland, Sweden. Hi guys, this is Flo. Thanks for the uh, for the opportunity to take you with me to my last trip to Lapland in Sweden. My wife and I and uh, Valentina we traveled to Sweden uh, between twenty uh, eighth of December twenty twenty and sixth of January twenty twenty one. It was uh, in the I think it was the third lockdown, the third hard lockdown here in Austria. Uh, and we managed to leave the country with a little trick <laughs> uh, because of an occupational travel. But the funny thing was that uh, in retrospect, it was absolutely no problem. It was the most wonderful travel we ever had because nobody was standing at the borders. There, wasn't, there were no policemen standing around, even just one security check at the airport in Munich and then nothing else. It was kind of uh, absurd because when we read how the borders were closed and how the controls um, were increased and then there was nothing, well, we felt a little bit betrayed because we thought, come on, we prepared so perfectly for leaving the country in lockdown and then no one checks us. I had this very one point at Munich airport, at Munich airport when I thought, come on, I have to go to a policeman to explain to him what I'm doing. Otherwise, I've, I, I would feel really, yeah, I don't know, pranked. <laughs> okay, so I created a little script. It's a little bit different approach now so I, I, I won't talk freely forgive me for that but I think uh, it's a light, nice little report and a very personal one as well with insights and conclusions and it will give you a bit better picture of what we can learn from traveling especially to places we somehow fear It is a weird idea in lockdown too, also known as November 2020, when I asked my wife at breakfast, 
I thought about flying to Shalefte after Christmas. I figured on some usual reaction like stop chewing, taking a sip of coffee, swallowing, throat clearing, um, what, saying, and so forth. Surprisingly enough, I received the answer, why not? I really was stunned. And of course, these two words opened the gates to a flood of new ideas, expectations, and most important, experiences. So, what to tell you about Shalefte? Shalefte is a city and the seat of Shalefte municipality in Westerbotten country. Funnily enough, it is written Shalefteo, but as I learned, they say Shalefte. So they leave out the last O, this A with the circle above. It is high up north with about 32,000 inhabitants, which they had in 2010. The municipality has approximately 72,000 inhabitants. This was back in 2030. So I have no idea how much it is right now. But, well, of course, there might be more now. But to get you an idea, so main, the main inhabitants or the main proportion of the population lives in the city and the rest around in the countryside. The city is a historical industrial uh, city with mining, which is the most largest industry, especially for gold. Uh, and it was called and nicknamed the Gold Town. Politically, it is a social democratic stronghold. The city is a well-known ice hockey town with its main team, Schellefte AIK playing in the Swedish top division, the SHL, which they have won um, several, on several occasions. The city itself was incorporated in 1845 and grew to its current population size mostly in the 1950s and 60s, growing only slowly since. It is the second largest city in Westerbotten after Umeå, and is located roughly halfway between it and Luleå. The Schlefte River passes through the city and uh, it is located around uh, 15 kilometers from the Bothnian Bay uh, open sea. Schlefte is served by uh, Schlefte Airport, abbreviated as SKF, locally known as Fallmark because of the village nearby. So um, it is around 15 kilometers from the city uh, center to the south. And it is a very tiny, a very small airport. They uh, have just one landing site and you, there is just one plane. And I think it leaves two times a day down to south. Uh, so you can't miss it. <laughs> or otherwise you will wait until the next flight will come or go. <laughs> Uh, for the history of Shelefte, the name Shelefte uh, is recorded to having been spelled as Shelefte in uh, 1327. Uh, on, the, um, on the Marina Carter, the name is spelled Shelite. Uh, the origin of the name remains unknown, but it is assumed uh, that it is of Sami origin. From the 14th century on, attempts were made to Christianize uh, Shelefte. A parish formed and a church was built. However, for the most part, the entire large northern Swedish territory of Norland was not Christianized until several hundred years after the rest of Sweden, and many northern areas such as Schlefte remained unexplored well past the Middle Ages. Uh, I personally guess because of the climate. But 
Well, yes, um, <laughs> not before the very end of the 7th century did the indigenous uh, Sami-Sami people of northern Sweden begin turning to Christianity, uh, much due to the efforts uh, by the northern Swedish superintendent called uh, Matthias Stoichius, who worked hard to accomplish this. Well, this is something uh, here as a personal uh, input. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of of, of uh, this kind of turning people into uh, Christ or whatsoever. And so, as in many other cultures, uh, the, the the original cultures, uh, there was so much lost. Stories were lost. Cultural heritage was lost. So, uh, several Sami priests were killed for this reason. And eventually, uh, the reason for the sudden awakened interest towards Shelef de Levin uh, and the surrounding areas were the great northern uh, finishing grounds of salmon. So the increased demand for fish was sparked by a stricter enforcement of the annual month-long fasting by Catholic Church, whereby meat was substituted by fish. Think about whatever you want, uh, how this connects and why this connects. But uh, just because of fish, I mean, honestly, bringing Christianity up there. Yeah, uh, weirder things happened in history. The actual city of Shelefte is one of the youngest cities of Nordland. Uh, it was found in 1845 by the Wicar Nils Nordlander. To all of you, by the way, who speak Swedish, if I misspell something, please forgive me. I'm just a tiny German-speaking uh, floor. <laughs> uh, so today, in the 20th century, Schlefte evolved uh, to an industrial and mining city, and many wooden houses were demolished to make room for brick buildings. Schlefte is now trying to become a leading city in education with the construction of Flora Skolan, a school that mostly focuses on entrepreneurial learning. It will become the home of a massive battery plant made by Northvolt uh, by um, uh, estimated 2023. And the largest private employer in Shelefte is the mining company Bolin AB with about 1,200 employees. The mine's copper ore contains particles of gold, silver and platinum, so Shelefte is still referred to as the gold town. And during the 1990s, the computer industry flourished, subsidiaries of Ericsson and Dieton Enator became important employers. Well, and of course, there is darkness in winter. Like many other countries or cities in, in the high, in up high north, uh, it is somehow thought of, or uh, we, we, we somehow know that there is always darkness in winter. Sun always, uh, sun just climbs up over the horizon a bit, and uh, yeah, somehow it is in our imagination that this, most of the time it's dark. So, especially around New Year's Eve, and this was the time when we planned to travel. My mother-in-law was super frightened as she heard uh, that we want to fly to this eternal darkness in the winter of north. Maybe this is also some of this Catholic story uh, we have to listen to or had to listen to as children. Eternal darkness, eternal light, you know what I mean. So she even showed me an article in a magazine which, uh, which was titled or subtitled, I think it was subtitled, Up to Minus 30 Degrees Celsius in Darkness. Uh, and she said, you, you want to do that with a three-year-old? You must be crazy. 
Uh, and I gave it a thought and replied, uh, well, uh, then it's emotionally 10 degrees warmer than here in lockdown, right? And after all, I mean, they have children there too. They have all, uh, they have also three years old. Of course, I can take them with me. Can't take Valentina with me and my aunt and Manuela. So the cold and the dark part that I read in this article, they first, this was the first moment when it gripped me, when it, when it touched my soul and my, my uh, imagination about what I was, uh, what I was facing in this, uh, in this vacation travel, however you would call it. So in 2020, winter here in Austria was absurdly green, uh, the same as the year before and the year before. And well, actually, I only remembered a short time of, I think it was seven to 10 days where Valentina saw snow. Uh, and when you're one or two years old, you can't remember anything except, uh, oh, <laughs> I missed to go to the party. Uh, or, oh, I forgot where the chocolate was. So um, in Austria, it was just green. And I knew that this was no option after one year of lockdown to have a toddler again playing around in in a somehow, yeah, dirty, green, grayish environment, nature. Uh-huh. So we booked a flight and called our friends that we want to stay for 10 days with them near Schellefte and dusted off our backs. We crammed out our clothes and while I was sitting on a pile of thermo undies and sheet trousers and pink unicorn jumpers with glitter, of course, we were going to darkness, you need glitter in darkness, um, I thought, what is darkness? Why, why do we fear it? I mean, cold is somehow logical. It, it it simply hurts physically, but darkness? So I consulted Miriam Webster to answer the what it is. And I was surprised to find six definitions of darkness. According to Miriam Webster, darkness is the quality or state of being dark, such as A. The total or near total absence of light. There was almost no light when he opened his eyes again. The darkness of night was thick and for a moment he began to panic again. Gary Paulson, it's a quote, a very fine quote for this first definition of darkness. B, the second definition is the quality of being dark in shade or color. The darkness of the old wooden floor, the darkness of these blues and greens, dark color or colors. In O'Donnell's paintings, darkness predominates. If there are bright colors, they are painted over a deep-hued ground, says Richard Kalliner uh, about um, O'Donnell's paintings. So we have this light and color thing, where very visual aspects of darkness. Then in another definition, it's the quality of being dark in complexion. Few people know the isolation Owens endured during his childhood in Alexander City, Alabama. Other kids teased him merciless of the darkness of his skin and his beanpole physique, uh, writes Jeffrey Chandida. Um, that's interesting because there is... It's, the, it's a definition where the visual aspects of darkness are combined with a human being for the first time. And that it is worth for Miriam Webster to put this in as a definition is somehow frightening that it is needed to, do, to write something like that. But okay, that is how the world seems to be. 
another this uh, another definition is a gloomy or depressed state or tone i'm not like blue in 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 blues darkness i'm not suicidal clinically depressed or bipolar but i'm a subject to mood swings this kind of darkness I've tried a number of different mental techniques, mostly prayer, visualization and meditation, but nothing has worked to lighten my darkness. Or another another quote was in, in this Merriam-Webster um, definition uh, article. Uh, and the other darkness was a tremendous sorrow, a deep sadness that her mother was dead and that the princess could now only talk to her in her dreams by Kate DiCamillo. This kind of darkness now turns from visual, a visual definition to a, a connection to a human being to an inner state of darkness. In another definition, it says darkness is evil. So from the same source, he drew the picture of a heavenly visitor, a god who comes to earth to impart true knowledge and save humanity from the powers of darkness, wrote G. Louis Martin. Here it becomes the first it is the first time where darkness is combined to belief i don't know it i would be highly interested if if there are other religion religious aspects or philosophical approaches where darkness is not connected to evil I have this uh, a friend of mine. Um, he's from Japan, and he always he loves to watch all those uh, horror movies from the seventies and eighties, like like uh, the uh, the Omen, um, where Christianity symbols and and things like the devil, etc., and darkness and evil uh, are presented and with. Uh, frightened organ music you know what i mean uh and he, he he's he laughs about it because I, I have no idea what it is about because i didn't grow up like that i have no idea what's so frightening because it's just yeah a cross or a plus symbol on the wall and now it's turned upside down so what <laughs> uh so if someone stumbles over darkness is not equaled evil i would be super happy to hear this story so the final definition is a lack of knowledge or enlightenment. Here a quote says in 1492, the intellectual darkness that shrouded Europe for centuries was slowly, almost grudgingly lifting. So enlightenment as an answer to darkness and this philosophical and intellectual aspect of darkness, of not knowing enough about a certain topic to proceed or to invent or investigate new areas of life. So, interesting. I wondered, after I read this, I understood, uh, okay, what it is and, uh, of course, how this city of gold uh, which was hit by Christianity um, with its uh, eternal light promises, now fits into this dark uh, darkness topic, darkness issue, darkness theme. My second question brought the following insight. Nykotophobia or nykotophobia is an extreme fear of night or darkness that uh, can cause intense symptoms of anxiety and depression. A fear becomes a phobia when it's excessive, irrational, or impacts your day-to-day -day life. 
Being afraid of the dark often starts in childhood and is viewed as a normal part of development. Studies focused on this phobia have shown that humans often fear the dark for its lack of any visual stimuli. In other words, people may fear night and darkness because they cannot see what's around them. While some fear is normal when it starts to impact daily life and sleep patterns, it may be time to visit your doctor. So the symptoms you may experience with uh, nicotophobia are much like those you would experience with other phobias. People with this phobia experience extreme fear that they cause distress when they are in the dark. Symptoms may interfere with daily activities and school or work performance. They may even lead to health issues. Different phobias uh, share similar symptoms. These signs may be either physical or emotional. With nicotophobia, symptoms may be triggered by being in the dark or even thinking about situations where you would find yourself in the dark. It's highly interesting that uh, physical symptoms include trouble breathing, racing heart rate, chest tightness or pain, shaking, trembling or tingling sensations, lightheadedness or dizziness, upset stomach, hot or cold flashes and sweating. So uh, it's an, an, an flee. Uh, people want to flee this. It's a reaction we have in fear of, uh, I have to get away of this, from this. The emotional symptoms, however, include overwhelming feelings of anxiety or panic and intense need to escape the situation, detachment from self or feeling unreal, losing control or feeling crazy, feeling like you may die or lose consciousness and feeling powerless over your fear. So having some fear of the dark doesn't necessarily mean you have a phobia. However, when the fear starts interfering with your everyday life, it may be considered irrational fear. And here are some scenarios to help illustrate the difference between a normal and irrational fear. Fear of darkness and night often starts in childhood, between the age of three and six. And at this point, it may be a normal part of development, and it's also common at this age to fear things like ghosts, monsters, sleeping alone, strange noises. Um, so for many children, sleeping with a night uh, light helps until they uh, outgrow the fear, uh, when the fear makes it impossible to sleep, however, uh, it causes severe anxiety or continues into adulthood. So then it is considered as nicotophobia. The additional risk factors around nicotophobia are uh, an anxious caregiver. Some children learn to be fearful by seeing a parent's anxiety over certain issues. An overprotective caregiver. Some may develop a generalized anxiety if they are too dependent on a part or a caregiver, or if they uh, feel helpless. Then uh, stressful events, trauma, such as a motor vehicle, uh, motor vehicle accident or injury, may also make a person more likely to develop a phobia. Uh, and, of course, genetics. Some adults and children are simply more susceptible of fears, possibly due to their genetics. Maybe those were the guys in the <laughs> in the in the forest or in the cave who said, "Oh my God, 
fire, fire is, is extinguishing. Uh, oh my God, we need more to eat. Oh my God, uh, water is out. Uh, oh my God, what is this? Ah, a new baby. <laughs> so you get the idea. Some of them, it, it's good to have them in, in a group. Uh, and uh, it's also better for the stability, uh, emotional stability of a group. So. Well, it was more info than I wished for, to be honest. Uh, and you can imagine how I felt when we finally took off to North. Uh, it was a, f a, a mixture of feelings like excitement, uncomfortableness, happiness, doubts. Uh, but to put it in what were, one word, it was just thrilling. Yeah, uh, I was happy to leave uh, Austria and I was happy to see something new. So I was just plainly thrilled in the first place. So we packed our things and left the dark age of pandemic weirdness for a better place. When we arrived at Chilefto Airport, uh, we were stunned how friendly everyone was. For instance, the policewoman who waved at us. Uh, we were like, oh my god, what did we do wrong? Uh, because waving policemen in Austria mean problems. But not up here. Here it was a nice, welcome, na? how are you? Any questions? No, have a nice stay in Chilefto. So... As we left the airport, we were stunned. And not just because of the friendly people, it was just uh, snow everywhere, everywhere snow. Uh, no big thing for the Northlanders, but for a three-year-old that haven't been seen snow only once in her life, it was heaven. I remember Valentina when she said, white is the most bestest color ever. <laughs> it was so cute. Uh, and our friend Alfred, um, a retired cook, he waited for us uh, to pick us up with his car. Uh, he hugged us with such warmth um, that I got a first glimpse how the inner light between people might fight darkness uh, in this country and in this kind of darkness. The car ride itself was plain excitement. I felt like driving uh, through one of my so loved charcoal pictures. There were black trees, black, black greenish trees, white snow, uh, some dots of blue sky winked through the big grey-white clouds. And honestly, I had tears in my eyes because it was so beautiful. When we finally arrived at our friend's house, Elke, who is married to Alfred, was already waiting with fresh Prosecco and Norwegian soup. I mean, I seldomly felt more welcome than in this very moment. However, it was somehow perverted as well, because I had to travel 24 hours and 2,500 kilometers to find human warmth. I mean, come on, back in middle Europe, in lockdown, not even neighbors talk to each other in fear of the virus, uh, creating more interpersonal darkness and cold than anyone can imagine. And this combined with an excessive media reporting that spit out tons of fear and confusion per hour. I mean, I asked for a second class of Prosecco to get out of this mood as fast as possible and back to a normal life, which is finally was. It was just normal. And so in the afternoon, we climbed in our sheet trousers and moon boots, thermosocks and... I saw Elke and putting on a smile and Alfred's face and both just said, I don't know, do you want to proceed to North Pole or was it? I really, I was irritated. And when we stepped outside, I got it. There was one thing for sure. It was not cold. I mean, yeah, the temperature was low, but it was not cold in the sense of 
Uh, oh my God, you will freeze to death in ten seconds if you don't move like a toddler on a chocolate bar. No, it it, it was somehow tingling. It was prickly. And the more I saw and, and sniffed and tasted and heard, uh, um, the more I asked myself, what in the mighty Tor's name is true of what I read and heard about North? Uh, is it my perception of things? Is it my sloppy expectation management? Or is it just bad journalism that messes with my understanding of this? I, I was really, I was confused. Nothing made sense. And these thoughts collapsed when I saw Valentina hopping into snow and sticking in it up to her tiny armpits, just laughing, laughing and laughing. And I hopped beside her, sinking my butt right beside her in the snow and laughed with her as well. Because that was what it's about. Forget darkness, forget cold. It's human warmth, sitting next to each other in cold snow. <laughs> so what followed were wonderful days in Lapland with many, many insights. For instance, Manuela loves to write and she hadn't had the chance uh, since Valentina was born to ride somewhere, horse riding. And, and uh, so one of the neighbors, um, she cares for three horses, a dog, her family, and somehow she cares for everything. And when we heard that she has horses and that Manuela could uh, take a ride with her, we were frightened again. And, and I was, well, why I'm frightened? I mean, we are here up north. We have no problem. People know each other. And if there is a problem, well, uh, there will be a hospital somewhere. Uh, and then it was like when Manuela said, back in Austria, we need a riding passport. And you have to take a practical test to get allowance to ride. And up in Sweden with this neighbor, it was something like, what's that good for? Shut up, pony up, start living. I mean, come on, here's the horse, get on it and have fun. Uh, and this was such another moment, how restricted we are, we already are and what we are not allowed to do and what for and of course, why? Or another story, um, Alfred uh, bought a ski scooter with 106 PS on 300 kilograms. I mean, if you welded wings on it, I think you could fly around. And I said, uh, isn't it a bit dangerous, Alfred? And he smiled, went back in his shed and came back with a helmet and said, okay, okay, here you are, Southlander. <laughs> uh, it changed my perception immediately of what it is all about or, or the day we walked into a coffee shop i mean you know austrians coffee shops it's it's a dna thingy uh, you can't pass a coffee shop even not not sniffing around oh my good it tastes wonderful so back at home all coffee shops were closed so we said no we have to enter we have to go inside there but uh mask and everything and and uh, as we entered we just heard a hey how much and uh, I wondered, uh, shouldn't I ask that? And the whispered smiled, no, how much coffee do you want? Oh my God, it was heaven. <laughs> or the other day when we uh, went to an indoor playground with Valentina, we, we read that you had to reserve a certain time, buy tickets online to keep uh, infections low. So we did that and uh, drilled Valentina what not to do. 
I mean, come on, you can't tell a three-year-old what not to do in an indoor playground. It's absurd, in retrospect. <laughs> but when we arrived and I showed my online booking, the clerk smiled and said, ah, you were that. And I was what, uh, what we, yeah, no one ever used this before. You're not from here, right? I mean, people just come and have fun. Ah, oh, again, oh, goodness. So it, it, it was so enlightening. Oh, when I say enlightening, uh, or the fact that the glow snoomed, uh, the, the snow gloomed in the evening. We were sitting, we were sitting in the room, we were sitting in the kitchen. I was looking outside and the snow gloomed. It wasn't dark. So somehow with each layer that we shoveled away, like fresh fallen snow from a sleigh, fun and life returned. And it was the absurdest absurdity in the field of absurdism that was ever discovered by a human being, namely me. How is it possible that in cold and darkness you feel more human and human-like than in mid-Europe with all the stuff around you have? Uh, with the knowledge of, ah, if I drop now with a heart attack, I can be safe, I can be rescued. With the knowledge, I hop in the car and in 10 minutes I can shop whatever I want. But it's cold, it's dark. This was somehow strange. In this very evening, uh, Alfred and I activated the outdoor hot tub. We shoveled some snow in it, mostly Alkidittis, and, and, and Alfred heated up the whole thing with wood. So we lay down there, lie down there in this warm, uh, warm snowy water. And this water is, it was somehow red, reddish because of the iron. Uh, of the iron around in the ground and in the snow and in the water. And we had a beer in hand and we were looking up in the sky and the stars were blinking. And it, I was like, okay, mate, looking back, what would you have done differently? And he gave it a long thought and answered, I would have done it 10 years sooner. I'm 65 now. Think about what I could have done with 55 up here. Hmm. I said, open a typical Austrian coffee shop, I guess. And he said, for instance. While the snow started to fall and I plunged to my nose in the water, I really gave it a long thought about what's next. Where do I want to go next personally as, as, a, as a human being in my, in my, as a multipod? There are so many things to do. Is there, is this the right place right here, right now? There is this one thing with thinking. If you do it intensely enough, uh, you find a good to go answer very fast. However, if you take too much turns, you end up in a mess uh, with much, much more questions than you can ever answer, which I personally always, always call as a worst case scenario or my personal worst case scenario when there are more, too much questions than I can ever answer. So... One day later, Elkid asked me if I want to see something really, really cool. And we hopped in the car and drove to the lighthouse and took a walk. We walked up there and Manuela and, and Valentina, they played around with the sleigh. And I was standing there and climbing up this tiny hill to the lighthouse. It became colder and colder and the wind from the sea, it re literally stepped my skin. But... 
With every step it felt right and better. I felt so right in this very moment. And, and when I stood there with this cold, really, really freezing cold wind, looking at the Leiden Sea rolling in, watching the waves crushing the coast, some seagulls fighting the wind, and, and, and I saw Finland at the horizon. I, I really, it was like I, I turned around, hugged Elke, and said, Thanks. I had nothing else to say and to think except thanks. Because in this very moment, I completely understood what it was all about in my life in this very moment. It, it, it's not about darkness. It's not about cold. It's not about fear. It's the lack of knowledge. It's the emotional binding through unreflected opinions of a system that wants to keep our feet still. A system that wants to make us passive, just to consume, not being a human being, reaching our highest potentials, especially when you're a multipod. And it's this artificial scarcity that keeps you always on your toes. It's, it's the ignorance, it's the arrogance. It's a, a world that dethroned nature and humanity itself for a new leading subject, the ego. And so when we came back home and ate dinner, I was subdued. I sculled my potatoes, potato pieces around in a sea of soup like icebergs. And I, I, I was knocked out by a conclusion. So when the ego is the new god, uh, and therefore the new moral authority, coldness and darkness, as we have to bear it right now, they are an integral part of the system that made it possible. And vice versa. I didn't really feel well this evening after this uh, uh, conclusion and the fact that each ego around me here in Middle Europe, where everything, sh everything should be so secure and, and fine and free, make things worse. So I waved goodbye on this evening soon, climbed between the sheets, I grabbed a journal to distract myself. And as it always is when you're looking for answers and if you have an eye, a keen eye on signs, then you stumble over one. And so in one article, there was this topic coping with darkness, especially in Tromsø. And this article was by Linda Vanderkam. And I will cite it here because it wonderfully describes the core issues. So, as the days get darker and colder in much of the Northern Hemisphere, it's easy to indulge in gloom. For the next few months, you'll be shivering, you'll be battling foul weather. Thanks to daylight saving time here, there will be no chance to see the sun after work. The gloom leads to a common question. What can I do to cope with the dark and cold? If you truly want to be happy during winter, though, this is the wrong approach to the season. Changing your mindset can do more than distracting yourself from the weather. That's the takeaway from research done by Carrie Leibowitz, a PhD student at Stanford University, who spent August 2014 to June 2015 in Tromsø in northern Norway. Tromsø is so far north that from late November to late January, the sun never climbs above the horizon. Leibowitz went to study the residents' overall mental health. 
because rates of seasonal depression were lower than one might expect. At first she was asking, why aren't people here more depressed? Uh, and if there were lessons that could be taken elsewhere. But once she was there, there uh, she said, this is a quote, I sort of realized that that was the wrong question to be asking, she said. Uh, when she asked people, why don't you have seasonal depression? The answer was, why would we? So <laughs> this somehow uh, mirrors what I um, what I lived through and what I, I saw and what I experienced with Alfred Elke and, and the people in it. So it turns out that in northern Norway, again, quote from uh, Kiril Labowitz, people view winter as something to be enjoyed, not something to be endured. And that makes all the difference. It's the perception, it's the point of view, it's the focus, it's a complete new definition and, and valuing things that are around you and of course fearing things because if darkness and cold and if i'm in, in winter take over me and if i'm alone with this with my ego and all of this well i guess it won't take too many winters and then there is one winter and that's the last winter you will ever have but being friendly with others being nice with others sharing human warmth fun and activities then there is this community and together it's much, much easier to survive such faces in life and, and such natural given things like coldness and darkness in winter. So to be sure that there are more some aspects of the near-polar culture that might be hard to emulate elsewhere, uh, small Norwegian communities are tightly knit and strong social ties increase well-being everywhere. That said, there are lessons that can help anyone think differently about cold weather. First, Norwegians celebrate the things one can only do in winter. As Leibowitz uh, can be quoted, people couldn't wait for the ski season to start. Getting outside is a known mood booster. And so Norwegians keep going outside, whatever is happening out there. Leibowitz also notes there's a saying that there's no such thing as a bad weather, only bad clothing. Another thing uh, Norwegians have uh, is the word Koselik, koselik, I hope it's right. And this means a sense of coziness. It's like the best parts of Christmas without all the stress. People like candles, light fires, drink warm beverages and sit under fuzzy blankets. There's a community aspect to it too. It's not just an excuse to sit on couch watching Netflix. Uh, Leibowitz also reports that many people in Tromsø have plenty of festivals and community activities, creating the sense that everyone was in it together. And finally, people are more enamored when the sheer beauty of the season. Leibowitz grew up near the Jersey Shore, and she says, I just took it as a fact that everyone likes summer the best. But deep in the winter of Norway, when the sun doesn't rise above the horizon, multiple hours a day can still look like sunrise and sunset, and against the snow, as she says, the colors are incredibly beautiful. The light is very soft and indirect. So most likely you can't cross country she's straight out of the uh, of the house. And while Norwegians, uh, those uh, famous sweaters they make, may be catching on, restaurants and coffee shops in more temperate climates don't all feature the fireplaces and candles common to the far north. Still, there are little things non-Norwegians can do. 
Slebowitz quote uh, said, uh, one of the things we do a lot of in the States is we bond by complaining about the winter. So it's hard to have a positive wintertime mindset when we make small talk by being negative about the winter. All this said, of course, to you, dear listeners, the things that happen right now to the US with, with the winter and, and this catastrophe, uh, of course, won't rise or won't, won't increase happiness or understanding for winter and, and developing a winter mindset. Um, I think this more of how to, what we can take away for the pandemic situation we live in. How can we cope with darkness or the pandemic isolation, which is also a kind of darkness. So this is easy enough to change this mindset because simply refuse to participate in the misery of Olympics uh, will help. Talk about how the cold gives you a chance to drink tea or hot chocolate all day. Talk about ice skating or building snowmen. Bundle up and go for a walk outside, knowing that you'll likely feel warmer and happier after a few minutes. Better yet, go with a friend. Social plans are a great reason to haul yourself out from under the covers. Overall, the, the mindset research is increasingly finding that it doesn't take much to shift one's thinking. Leibowitz found doesn't have to be this huge complicated thing. You can just consciously try to have a positive wintertime mindset and that might be enough to induce it. So, taking this away and lying there, I was thinking how can we integrate this in our pandemic life situation where we are forced to stay out of each other's ways, where we are forced to stay inside. So it's exactly the difference of what human beings should do. And I think that's why it is so super hard to get along with this situation. But after all, there is hope because vaccines work and it doesn't matter if it is AstraZeneca or BioNTech Pfizer or Moderna, they all work and they will become better, which is each new pro uh, production cycle. So in the end, and that's my personal thinking and my personal understanding uh, as, as a university assistant working on this topic daily on a daily basis. The virus, the coronavirus, in the end will become nothing more than a mild form of a cold where there is a vaccine and that's it. However, the psychological and mental problems this one year of abstinence to each other created these are the topics and the issues we have to keep an eye on and maybe coping with darkness and cold and maybe this kind of northern mindset to cuddle up to bond up to do social things to become active again reinforces the social binding between us to live again as a community as human beings without the ego. So before I settled in, I had a moment of surprise. I put down the journal and when I looked out the window, it wasn't dark. No, absolutely not. The snow gloomed again. And before drifting off to dreamland, I understood that the stars might make the snow gloom and that there will always be a light somewhere. And this was the very moment I really felt warm inside before I fell asleep.
that presentation from Flo, which was fascinating, and lucky for us that he had the opportunity to go all the way up to Lapland and see it for himself and uh, share his experience with us. We're going to chat about that now a little bit for the remaining few minutes of uh, this episode. So my name's Ted, and I'm with you here, and Vanessa is joining me too. Hi, Vanessa. Hello, everybody. Hello, Ted. Hello, Flo. Yeah, and Flo is here also live with us to share some more thoughts, and we can chat a bit more in person. Flo, how are you doing? Oh, brilliant. Thanks a lot. Well, as I say, thanks to you for um, taking the initiative on this idea. It's uh, been a really fascinating exploration of, of a corner of the world and, and, you know, the themes that have come out of that and some of the parallels to basically the lives that we're all living here. You know, I think we really enjoyed that uh, exploration of the meaning of darkness, you know, it's uh, something that's like pervasive throughout human history, of course, the light and the dark, and you see it in, in like biblical terms and uh, in all kinds of ways. It comes comes back to how people describe almost the human existence, you know, and then you go up there to way up northern Sweden and you see it for yourself. Did um, Did you have any particular expectations, I guess, of how you would feel experiencing that kind of climate and darkness actually i was i was frightened because uh, i never uh, had an idea of how cold cold could be or, or what it mean to, to be cold because the coldest cold i've ever experienced here in middle mid of europe was i don't know minus five minus ten degrees celsius but not the no. expected mi- minus 20. <laughs> That's nothing. Yeah, and that, that without the climate change. I mean, today it's more like uh, the coldest winter is plus five. But uh, mm. no, I, I, I had I had no, no, no expectations per se. It was more like, uh, how will I um, re- react on this situation? And there was this one moment when we landed, where we dived into a, a real a foggy area. And uh, we weren't seeing the landing site. And and uh, I thought, oh, my God, what I'm doing here? If this is the whole week now, 10 days in fog and darkness mm. and cold. It was the first moment. And then, I don't know, six nanoseconds later, yoo what cool! <laughs> Something new! <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, no, there were no real expectations. They were just seeing what's coming up and, and seeing what reflects the actual situation down in the pandemic situation in Austria. Yeah. Mm. One thing that's interesting amongst the three of us, we've all now experienced, I guess, somewhat Northern living. And I've been to Finland myself. That was in early December, way back in 2007. So the days were super short. And I went to visit a friend of mine there in kind of the east part of the country, which uh, Finland reminded me a lot of Canada in, the, kind of bit in just a smaller scale. But, um, oh, yeah. you know, very beautiful landscape, lakes everywhere, forests, and people who adapt to the cold, of course. And so, you know, you see the the stereotypical saunas and, and things like that all over the place, but it's true. And uh, the, the biggest difference, though, there being there was really quite far north even compared to Canada. So the, I think we had maybe five hours or so of daylight at that time. And you kind of squeeze as much as you can into the daylight, you know, if you have to do things outside. Um, aside from that, I, I lived in Edmonton for about three months earlier that same year, mm-hmm. also in the middle of winter. And the same thing, the days there are a bit longer. And Vanessa will share, share this part because she's in Edmonton right now. But I remember that it, yeah. in my experience in Edmonton was... 
that people did not really embrace the cold. There were some people, of course, who did, but essentially you just kind of shuffled off to work as it was starting to get light out. <laughs> and, you know, especially if you're going to some yeah. kind of office job, which I was at a temp agency at the time. And by the time you finish, like five o'clock is getting dark. There was like a liquor store in every corner and people just kind of sheltered, you know, and waited until the sun. Now, the summer, I didn't see Edmonton in the summer. I, I would, I'd love to because it's the opposite and you have super long days and it's nice and warm. But, um, you know, and, and so anyway, that, Vanessa's there right now, of course. And yeah. what's your experience of moving farther north? Now, just as another context, I was looking on the map and Edmonton is north for Canadian terms. It's the northernmost largest city in North America, but it's only the same latitude yep. as like... Manchester and Copenhagen and I don't know, Helsinki and places like this. So relative terms, yeah. it's not super far north, but yeah. But it's still pretty far north. Yeah. Um, I will say I've actually been to Helsinki hmm. um, and I just went for a weekend when I was in staying in Germany for a summer. And um, I also agree that it was a little bit like Canada. It just uh, visually kind of looks like Northern Canada, sort of the area that I'm in. Um, and architecture wise, like it was very similar for sure. Um, but yeah, so I'm living in Edmonton and I've lived in various places, but Edmonton is the coldest place that I've lived in. Um, and the most North place that I've lived in. So, or northernmost, I should say that I've lived in. And yeah, you're right. I mean, during the winter people kind of, as you said, we wake up before the sun comes up, we go to, well, I work from home, but my husband works out of the house. So he goes to work and he comes back when it's starting to get dark. And it's, uh, it's hard because if you're not actually actively going outside when the sun is up, then you don't really see the sun much. Uh, and then the flip side is the summer, the sun is up all the time. <laughs> and so um, it's nice and warm, but you also, we had to get blackout curtains because when we were going to bed, even at like 11 PM, it's still light out and it's still light out enough that you're like... I can't sleep. <laughs> so it's very interesting. It's not as, um, I, I, I was in Helsinki during the summer and the sun pretty much never went down. Like it went down far enough that you had this kind of dusk light for a few hours of the night. But I mean, I remember sitting there as, at what I thought was 7 p.m. And it turned out it was uh, sitting outside at a bar on the patio. And I'm like, oh, it's only like 7 p.m. Like, this is great. And then I looked at the like clock that was in the square there and it said midnight. And I was like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it was a very weird, jarring realization. And so um, it's not quite that bad here in Edmonton. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so yeah, I have my own experience. I haven't been north of Edmonton. So I'm sure when you get up to the Arctic Circle, when you get up to some of the indigenous communities that are here in Canada, that are so far north, I mean, it's probably a totally different story. Very similar, of course, to where you might be in northern Sweden, Finland, etc. So I don't know. And, and just to comment on what you said about Edmontonians not really um, sort of embracing the winter, I think that is true. I think that a lot of people do go out and like cross country ski and snowshoe and that kind of thing. And I, I liked in Flo's presentation, I guess, he said that uh, somebody had said, you know, there's in Norway, there's this saying that um, there's no cold weather, there's only bad clothing or something like that. And I think that's totally true. Like, here in Edmonton, I have three different jackets, you know, just for different <laughs> conditions. <laughs> so it's kind of like, oh, okay, well, what's is it minus it's minus 20 today? Okay, that's a pretty cold, we're probably not going to go out for a snowshoe. But if it's minus 15, minus 12, minus 10, sure, we've got a coat for that. We've got mitts for that. We've got a hat for that. Like, we layer up and we go out because that's how you get your sunshine. So Flo, can you just remind us, was there 
really any daylight at all when you were up there, which was right at the end of December, is practically the shortest time of the year. <laughs> yeah, it was the funny thing. No kidding. Because, <laughs> that was the funny thing because uh, I, I really thought that, uh, as, as they told me, it's only six hours of daylight. And I thought, oh my God, six hours. <laughs> but when I was there, and, and they said, uh, they said uh, it will start at 10 and after three o'clock, well, uh, that was it. And I think that was what what frightened me the most because thinking, oh my God, what will I do in so much darkness? But when I was up there, it started much, much earlier. It, it wasn't true per se because it's, uh, sun rise at, I don't know, eight o'clock. So you saw the first mm -hmm. lights, uh, the first light beams coming up. And then until the sun was up enough to be a morning, okay, it was, of course, nine, half past ten. And when it became three or uh, um, three, half past four, then sun slightly started to set again. And after four to half five, it was really dark. And to be honest, it was it is pretty similar to what we had here in Austria with foggy air, uh, fog and cloudy weather. So the first time you really started to see a day, uh, it was like eight to half past nine. And well, it got dark again at around uh, 5 p.m. So I think actually I only lost daylight of about one hour. So it was, it, it, was, mm. it, it was not true what I expected and what people told me. And this was kind of, yeah, it was weird. It was weird because I thought if, if this isn't true, what else isn't true? And I think the, yeah. the main issue about daylight and the darkness, it was like there is light after all. But it's not communicated. It, it is like, yeah, you know what I mean? That's one thing I found so fascinating with uh, your your report is just busting the myths and the stereotypes that we all have of being up north and, and having shorter days. And it's not like life just stops at three o'clock when the sun goes down. You know, people people embrace it and, and make the most of their time. I can definitely comment on that. And I, I found it really interesting when you were talking about the myths and the misconceptions as well, because I moved to Edmonton from Vancouver, British Columbia, which is like the southernmost, I think, town, city in Canada, or at least one of them, uh, right on the US border or very close and um, very, very mild and warm. And, you know, minus five Celsius there is considered really cold. <laughs> um, and so when we moved to Edmonton, people were like, it's going to be so cold and dark and dirty. And it was like this weird like misconception of like what Edmonton is and we moved here and we visited first before we moved and we found it's beautiful here like there are fields and there's grass and there are trees and yeah there's no mountains which I do miss but amazing sunsets and um it's really beautiful here and it's just a different kind of beauty like it there's this idea that it's going to be dark and cold all the time okay yeah it's kind of dark and it's cold but it's it's a mindset shift that you have to have. And so I've started to really tell people from Vancouver when they're like, how is it being in minus 20? I'm like, I just try to tell them in the most positive terms possible, like, well, you know, the sun was shining today. So that was really great. And it's cold. But you know, we just bundled up and took the dog out. And yeah, we couldn't stay out for very long today. But that's okay. We have the windows like the blinds open and the sun streaming in whereas in Vancouver, it's dumping rain, right? So just kind of having those conversations and really just trying to tell them, like, it's not what you always think. It's you have this misconception that I don't know where it came from. Right. So I really that resonated with me and your 
in your part flow that, yeah, we have these misconceptions and these sort of weird preconceived notions, I guess, yeah. of things yeah. that aren't necessarily true. To, to be honest, sometimes I really had this 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 uh, feeling that that uh, the articles that are are, um, are written about uh, um, North, they seem to be uh, cloned. Because if you take some of them and, and read, uh, I don't know, the first 10 to 12 articles that pop up uh, via Google search, uh, especially for Schlefte or Lapland, they read similar. Then I think, what is if everyone clones those or copies just because it reads good and everyone goes, oh, that's cool if I copy the first or the best article and then I'll be uh, in the search uh, so, uh, in the search um, optimization, also uh, top up in, in right. top three, uh, then then it it it's uh, yeah. Where's truth? You just go up there with wrong expectations. That's I mean mm -hmm. that's a lie per se, so to speak. And I loved that you included um, some research done by what was her name, Leibowitz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. And she's talking about how um, she got to Norway and also had these, you know, she was asking, why aren't people here more depressed? And it turns out that it's because they are fostering community so much and that their um, connections personally are what are really getting them through that winter and also embracing the winter as winter as just a phase that they're going through instead of just enduring it and slogging through every day. Um, but then when we talk about darkness kind of paralleled with the pandemic that we're all experiencing, how do you do that? That's been one of the hardest things for the winter for me here in Edmonton is we can't get together with people in person inside. We can get together outside, but if it's minus 20 Celsius or colder, you're not going to do that. So it's been, and you know, Zoom is fine, Zoom meetings, Zoom calls, but I'm getting Zoom fatigue and I'm yeah. kind of like, I don't want to see people over a screen anymore. I want to see them in person. So <laughs> it's been really hard, <laughs> to be honest. That's okay. Yeah. I think what, what uh, and, uh, um, and that's a good point, is this Zoom fatigue, et cetera. Up there, they really love their tech gimmicks and and their internet because of this they can they can communicate social media means more to them uh it really means socializing mm. and for me it the, mm. i mean for me per personally when i came back the interesting most interesting thing in this whole uh, uh trip was that i kind of understood that there is this kind of people had to stay in have to stay inside because of nature, okay? They understand when they go out and it is minus 20 or minus 30 degrees Celsius, they will die. So they have to keep an eye on each other because if someone doesn't live the, far, the, mm. the farm next to you, even if it's just three kilometers, you know I won't make it. So they are somehow limited by natural conditions. My sense was that there was a, a real spirit of warmth and community that you encountered being up there as much as much as you could the time you were there, 
but uh, it's kind of the paradox because you're so far north, the weather and just the conditions are more extreme and you're more isolated, which taps into what we're talking about. People learn to be self-sufficient and that goes back generations. Mm -hmm. That's something that's just you're, you're born with because it's the nature of life. When you live in a bigger city like Stockholm or Edmonton, which has a million people, you just don't have that same kind of wherewithal, I guess, of how you have to look out for yourself and it, just in practical ways, you have to fix things, right? You have to plan ahead and all these kinds of things. And as a result, when you have people, like-minded people around you, it could be a small community. I forget. You know how big the city was? Um, uh, she left there. Yeah. Uh, I think 30,000, 30, 32, 35,000 people. Lots yeah. of that's fairly big. It's not like 5,000 people, but... I mean, so that's that's yeah. a that's a decent sized community, but they all have that thing that in common is that you know they're used to having this common experience of living in in a relatively more extreme environment where you have mm -hmm. to be more aware and self sufficient, and as a result, there's that common bond, which I got the sense creates a sense of community and the warmth, the common experience that comes from that of people essentially supporting each other and embracing that life and welcoming you. That's what stood out for me is how much you were just embraced and they wanted to show you i think there's part of it is that people want yeah. the let's say the outside world the rest of the world to know how warm and welcoming the north is when mm. our impression of it is nothing mm. but cold and dark exactly and yeah. it's not it's yeah. fascinating yeah yeah i actually would love to go visit <laughs> yeah that's just it it makes you for sure <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh and really when you look on the map i should try to draw some context i've got a map in front of me so like shalefta is on the the west coast of the Gulf of Bothnia, which is between Sweden and Finland. And I mean, it's north, but it's not, it's kind of like barely more than halfway up Sweden. If you think of, if you know a little bit of the geography in places like Murmansk or Tromsø up in Norway, like that's another, I don't know, five or 700 kilometers even farther north. So mm -hmm. imagine like, you know, there's, there's lots of places that get even more extreme. And I'm sure they would think of Shalefta as the south, right? <laughs> exactly. Shalefta, like <laughs> Stockholm and the rest of the south. Do you have a sense of how connected people feel, at least in Shalefta where you were, to the rest of their country, to like Swedish society and the outside world? Do they feel much of a connection? What I understood was that they feel as a community, as a stronghold of warmth in the cold, so to speak. They see themselves as humanity. They, they stay together, stick together. They, they solve everyday life problems together. And, oh, I don't know. For instance, um, Aki said, uh, when she came, when, when they came up and they bought this little farm and uh, she was uh, looking outside one day, uh, drinking a cup of coffee. And she said, you can't imagine, suddenly someone was mowing my lawn. With and I said, <laughs> uh, okay, that's weird. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, no one would do that in Austria. You, you would be sued to do that. And so I got out, went out of the house and uh, I waved him. And uh, he came up and said, oh, hi, I'm your neighbor. Is it okay if, I mean, I'm just doing it. I can do it for you as well because I have the time. <laughs> and she was like, Oh my God, that's possible. Do I have to pay him or something? No, no payment. Oh, come on. We are neighbors. That's okay. We help each other. Or the other, the other thing when she wanted a, fl a flagpole to put on um, a Swedish and an Austrian flag. And it was, I don't know, five meters tall. And she was standing there and thinking, mm, how can I transport it? I already ordered it, et cetera, et cetera. So this neighbor was showing up and said, Oh, I'm a lorry driver. I can pick it up for you if you want. 
No, you can't do that. Oh, yes, of course, there's the lorry. I can drive there. It's just half an hour. I'll be back in half an hour. Off he was. Back he came with the ball. She was so stunned wow. that this can happen. And no one is asking. They are just doing. They're getting out and doing it. And I visited Sweden very often. And it's most of most parts of the country. It, it is like that. Of course, it won't be everywhere. But the far north you get up, uh, the the more human-like it becomes. I don't know. It's, yeah, interesting. Well, Flo, I could feel the... I could sense the gears turning in your head as you uh, wrapped up yeah. your episode. Do you do you find yourself thinking of of going back, spending more time, maybe even uh, living there at some point or something like that? Yeah, I will move there definitely. Hmm. <laughs> it's pretty appealing. I mean, I'd love to live in a community like that. Now, for for me too. It's like Edinburgh. Edinburgh is the most beautiful and most wonderful town on earth for me because for me personally, Edinburgh never betrayed me in its social competence. You can drop in any pub, have some fun, have some pints, go home. No, no bad, fe no hard feelings, no offenses. That's just it is. You are an Edinburgh. And the same it is uh, when I go up north and with the climate change, I told my wife, come on, we can go up there and I don't know, grow some oranges <laughs> and live from it. No, <laughs> just kidding. But I think, yeah, it will be a retreat when I retire. Definitely. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that's interesting because most people are like, I'm going to go somewhere warm when I retire. Uh, so climate wise, I should say. I'm glad that the three of us have this in common that you know we we have we share the same perspective I think and values on this and I bet a lot of people listening as well do uh, we see a lot of this similar themes go through the the putty verse of um, you know simplifying and having um, priorities and 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 community of course which is why we're part of the putty verse in the first place uh, and to find a place like this it uh, it kind of brings it all to life even more. This has been our second episode of going up to Scandinavia because we did do that episode number 34, I believe, 34 with Alberto a couple of years ago. And he lived in the Lofoten Islands off the coast of Northwest uh, Norway, mm. which is even further north. But um, yeah, this is kind of uh, another perspective as well. And it was so wonderful to get Flo's firsthand experience of being there. And it was so vivid. We really captured the vivid essence of your experience there. And especially overcoming the expectations, the stereotypes. I think that might just be the title for this episode is, uh, you know, uh, un uncovering those stereotypes and discovering the real life that's actually there. So thanks very much, Flo. It's been, it's been a great story. Happy to be here. Absolutely happy to be here.